All right. Hi, guys. Yes. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Hello. We are back. Welcome to, we don't even know what episode number at this point, but we are talking about sleep disorder breathing and... In, no, no, like, no, 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 finish no, no, the- no, 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 we are talking about, uh, okay. The title official title. This is Kyle Hill, by Here the way, go, guys. I didn't do my intro. Callie Hill. Um, misdiagnosis and ineffective treatments. Yes, that is related to sleep disorder breathing, which was how I started <laughs> it. So misdiagnosis and ineffective treatments regarding obstructive sleep apnea Sleep disordered breathing. Obviously, we're focusing a ton on pediatric care. We can talk about adults with this too, but I think this, I think this is an important thing to talk about because as we, the providers, work on our collaborative care, it's important to understand the treatment modalities that exist in dental sleep medicine and in medicine for sleep disorder breathing. And we've got CPAPs, we've got oral appliance therapy, mandibular advancement devices non-surgical expansion and surgical expansion. And <laughs> this is just non-layman terms here. And, but when we start with sleep disorder breathing and sleep apnea with kids, the first line treatment still today in medicine and dentistry, people would argue, is tonsil and adenoid removal. Tonsil and what removal? Adenoid. Adenoid. What are adenoids? It's the little dingleberry that hangs down between the tonsil and your nose. <laughs> i'm so sorry guys uh, it's just this is where it is so both of those are important lymphatic lymph nodes i was gonna say lymphatic they're in a tonsil circle right right so it, and we had our daughter's daughters removed yes we didn't remove it she was her ent did barely two mm, yeah yeah little young for oral appliance therapy I was newer at this and then, mm-hmm. and she was too little, not that she can't start, but to get any sort of immediate relief. And she's been our probably, I mean, most complicated, but not that complicated child medically. And she slept terribly. I mean, she would have major night sweats. You pick her up out of her crib after a nap and she was drenched in sweat. She would move all night long, all around her crib. Mm-hmm. And, so we did the tonsil and adenoid removal and that's fine guys. Like I'm not here to say we don't do TNA removal. We do. But if you look at our blog, we shared about a month ago, an article that was just done uh-huh. and it talked about how you can shrink the tonsils and adenoids. I'm not I'm using that shrink word loosely, but you can mitigate the, size of them by dental expansion. So so we've known this. The airway dentists in the space know this. You force nasal breathing, you get the filtered, humidified air back in the body through the nose because when you mouth breathe, it is not filtered, warmed, or dehumidified, which causes the tonsils to be really enlarged and gnarly and red and irritated. If you can force nasal breathing, if you can get the the child with that tongue up, breathing through their nose, breathing that filtered air, you're going to help the tonsil nanoids to shrink. So when they're in oral appliance therapy, let's say that the babies are the three, four, five, six-year-olds. If these tonsils are massive, if these tonsils are grade four overlapping, this is the kid, they got to go. 
because you, as the dentist, need to make sure that you don't shove something in their mouth that they won't be able to tolerate because their airway is so horrifically compromised. So there is absolutely a time and a place for tonsil down removal. So don't come at me. Don't at me <laughs> with, oh, she's anti-TNA removal. I'm not. But what I am pro is following the research as we have changed the way we have done things because we've just done things one way for a very, very long time. So, so on a previous episode, we talked about doing things um, and, you know, some people will wait for, uh, what is it called? Like some kind of like peer reviewed journal or some kind of uh, acceptance in the universities right, right. where things change. Which I get. It. And, but I, I think when it comes to tonsil nadenoid removal, we're talking about something that's irreversible. Right. Something that can cause harm. Well, and I mean, there's risks to any sort of surgery. That one right. is relatively low when it has to happen. It's, it's, it's come, a, I mean, but it's, it's still fine. surgery and it's still surgery. It's, and it's been used as a first line it's expensive, defense. Right. And yeah. But what we have found, and when I say we, I mean, I've got the top airway dentists in the world at, that I get to hang out with and call my friends. And, but what we have seen collectively is we've got the eight year old, nine year old, 10 year old, 12 year old mouth breather in our chair. Tonsil nano is already gone. Oral appliance therapy was never started. The orthodontics wasn't done correctly. No, pro, no interceptive ortho was done pre-teenage. And the jaws aren't developed. So one way it was put to me that I thought was really telling is the tonsil and adenoids removal clears the straw. You've got a breathing straw. Yours might be big like a garden hose or tiny like a straw. It, it, and you, like a coffee you, straw. You, you, a coffee straw. You pull it out. You, you have cleared that obstruction, right? But you're not growing that airway. You're not making the straw bigger. You're not making it bigger. You're not, you're not fixing the position of the jaw and the expansion of the dental arches by just removing the tonsils and adenoids. So what that article that we posted on our blog was proving for those that needed... It was evidence for this. Evidence for expansion. Evidence for expansion first. It was just, from what I read on there, palate expansion. So when we get into the expanders discussion, we're going to talk about how airway center dentistry is different than traditional expanders because it's both arches. But it was not even, I mean, the amount that they were shrinking the tonsils and adenoids just by doing their their RPE treatment and their expander treatments in these kids was 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 notably like 80 to 90 plus percent that the tonsils and adenoids tissue shrunk. So that's just another, can we treat the root cause? If the root cause of needing tonsil and adenoids out is that the kid can't breathe through their nose and their mouth breathing, so their lower jaw is underdeveloped because it's a hinge and it opens and the tongue doesn't sit to the roof of the mouth, then they're going to continue to breathe like this and their tonsils in the back of their throat is going to stay dry and they're going to get more cavities because their mouth breathing because their saliva pH is now dropped and it's dry and sticky in their mouth. That was a lot that I just ranted about. Then we're not going to ever get it right if we don't fix that first. We're just going to take out really important tissues Again, if they're massive, they need to come out, they need to come out. But if we can work around them, we should do that because then they can keep that lymphatic tissue. Did you know that adenoids and tonsils to an extent grow back? They can grow back? Yes, I did know that. Yeah, so yeah. It, is, it is not always the only thing that's going to fix the problem. So anyways. Well, we you really hit the ground running. Um, <laughs> there was no pause for effect. <laughs> But I mean, that's what is so important because as the dentist, you're looking at it and we're telling, I'm teaching dentists to be doing a tonsil grade in the chair, like have them say, I'll stick their tongue out, check if they're tongue tied or lip tied. And then how big are the tonsils? It's on all of the forms when you're going to do oral appliance therapy. So then you have to decide, okay, oh man, the tonsils are really big. And the hardest decision that you'll make in that moment regarding tonsils 
is, do I need to refer? You're going to look at them and you're going to have to decide, do I need help? Do I need that collaborative care in this instance? And one of the tricks that I do is when I go in and I meet the patient for the first time and I'm, I, I, I'm never sitting in the doctor chair like rare, it's not until I'm ready to lay him back. I'm usually on the chair with him, talking to the parents. I go around, I'm shaking their hand. It's just a really fun environment to the best of my ability where we're just getting to know the kid and what they're dealing with. It's not just me back there with my clipboard writing things down that they say. So that's a little pro tip, I guess. But the the thing for me is I'm looking, I'm talking to the mom and I'm staring at the kid. They're watching TV. They're on their iPad. They're doing whatever they're doing. And I'm looking to see if they're mouth breathing. And there are kids that don't breathe through their nose one time. Yeah. They don't breathe through the nose one time the entire time they're in the room with me. Then you ask the parent if they're mouth breathing and, or if they're a mouth breather. And, and most of the time they're going to say yes, but sometimes like, Oh, I don't really know. And I was like, well, they've been doing that since I walked in the room and I'm not even talking to them half the time. So I do think this is probably an issue. They're not naturally breathing through the nose. You can also just have, if you're looking at big tonsils, you can, and you've observed them and you feel like their lips are closed. Well, then you can look at them and tell them, Hey, take a deep breath in your nose for me. I have had a patient who couldn't, nothing could go in. So no air whatsoever could go in. Make a difference to that patient. No, that means they would. They absolutely need their adenoids removed. They could oh. get no air in physically through their nose. So you you put something in their mouth. You think they're going to keep that in? They have to mouth breathe. Mm-hmm. So so that's where, if they can take deep breaths in through their nose, they haven't been like <sighs> the entire time. <laughs> Sorry for that. Like in the chair. Then start oral appliance therapy. Start expansion and see how the treatment goes. If you have a patient that just cannot keep their appliance in at night. Or if you're not doing fixed and you have been beating your head against the wall trying to be able to keep this in, you need myofunctional therapy and an ENT referral for a nasal scope and a tongue tie evaluation, period. And that's what's going to help you get over the hump. You still need to be doing that oral appliance therapy. You still need to be expanding those jaws, upper and lower, to get that tongue up and make everything wide. All right. So slow down, 100%. You're not in charge anymore. <laughs> I'm in charge. Um, See, you guys. That's that, what happens when that you just was give me free incredibly rain. overwhelming. <laughs> so I, if if you didn't catch n- all of that, then you're probably everyone. So I'm gonna That's bring it back down. True. You just went 100 miles an hour, and I our know. poor listeners are hope- sitting there. They're probably all speeding if they're in their car. They're probably look down. Stop going 88 miles an hour, please. Slow down, guys. Um, so we are going to talk about as many misdiagnosis and ineffective treatments, um, as we can, not just TNA. Uh, surgery. So, um, you've, you've glazed over a, a thousand things in your rant. All right. I'm going to bring them back. I'm trying to okay. remember them. The big one was, what do you do when you see it? Right. Um, just like anything else, the, an airway, I think an airway dentist needs to have a referral network, just like you, just like you are when you're wearing your general practice hat is, um, when I have, when I break off a file in MP3, who am I going to call when I have impact, when I have a disto angular impaction of number 16 to 17, who am I going to call? So just like this, it's, it, you're not going to call your old surgeon. You're not going to call your endodontist, right. To help you with, to collaborate with you on these cases. Right. You're going to have to have someone who's qualified to do it, has a license to do it. And that's an ENT. Correct. Right. So having an ENT that you like that works well with your office that's collaborative. That isn't just, you know, thinking you're crazy because you're, why are you screening for this? I mean, that should be a huge red flag. Um, 
That's so, not the one you want to work with if they're asking you that. How So let's, how, how did you find real quick? Don't make it long. All right. We don't have time for that. But how did you find your ENTs? So the ones that, hmm. You already used up a lot of time. How did I find them? Um, most actually came from the patients who would tell me that's who they were seeing. And there there's a couple of larger chains here and one of the one of the docs that I'm close with that uh, an ENT here branched away from one of those chains it's not a bad not a bad chain at all but he just really wanted to be able to do things so specifically on airway he's the airway alliance ENT and it's been awesome to have somebody that really is versed in this because they're not all versed in palate expansion and phrenectomies I would actually say probably most of them aren't because we've had some that, you know, we've referred and they went somewhere else for whatever reason, maybe in in network with their insurance and they've gone to just whoever ENT and they've been told like their grade four tongue tie is no big deal. And that, you know, they definitely don't need to be worrying about the tonsils and the mouth breathing. So, and, and so you learn really quickly who you're going to work with and who you're not going to work with. So, um, but that's the good news because there, maybe you could find, Airway focused ENTs in Absolutely. your community, which I think would make it easy to make that phone call. Yeah, and and we've had patients that have moved and have said like, "Hey, do you have a good ENT? You know, Wisconsin or like Fort Worth, Texas, or whatever else." And I've always said, "Call an airway dentist, call a Vivos provider, or an airway health solutions doctor. Get online, put in your zip code, and find one because they are going to have one that they trust and use." So that is a, a tip for patients oh, even that well, are listening. Maybe, maybe a dentist can do that. Like, hey, who, who are you referring Absolutely. to? Absolutely. Because this is about the patient, right? So 100%. you don't need to go find the one ENT that doesn't have any other right. you know, doctors, dentists yeah. in their network. So um, misdiagnosis, tonsils and eye removal, you, you, you jumped on top of that horse and you cut its head off and spit down its <laughs> neck. And that's what my mom would say. So... Um, but you did you did offer the listeners at least one clear piece of information about what to do when you do see it, and that is if they are touching, they are grade four, they're terrible. Patient can't breathe through their nose because they of need it. Need to go to the ENT. You need to refer the ENT, and in your referral, you're writing refer for tonsil nadenoid evaluation, evaluation and removal. Yeah, evaluation. Okay, it's on them if they want to remove it or not. And they know what we mean by that, so it's evaluation. And I usually add in you know patients undergoing oral appliance therapy with us for upper and lower. Uh, expansion and nasal breathing is imperative in this case. And I look forward to the collaboration of care for the patient. Okay. So um, now a patient comes back and they're like, you use our daughter as an example. And so I think it's a really good example because, you know, we, we may or may not have jumped the gun on that surgery. Um, but as like a parent going through it, like me, like I don't know anything about tonsils and adenoids, except I see them when I'm back there and working as a dentist. Um, but I mean, it was, it was not fun to go pick up your little girl after she's been, you know, have, has had a, no, that, was not that type of sedation and, and see how oh groggy gosh, she was. No, I just hated it. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I wonder a lot, like, did we do the right thing by taking those out? And, and I've told patients this too, like, I don't know. I mean, you and I haven't talked about this and she probably got it done, but I do wonder, could it have been different if we, if I could have just intervened, you know, earlier, she was just so little and. I was concerned about the grinding and all of the rest of the stuff that was happening. And um, I do wonder if we did the right thing, but when I'm talking to parents about it, that sometimes they're beating themselves up over certain things. I'm like, do you just do the best you can with what you've got? Mm -hmm. 
totally. really do. And and at that at that point, it was important for us to make sure that she was sleeping better and she slept better, not perfectly until she got into oral appliance therapy, but she slept better. And that was that was the check off the list that we knew totally. that she was not immediately hypoxic every night when she was breathing when she was sleeping. So now your patients that are in between and you're, you're saying that, okay, maybe I'll send you for a consult. Um, but if they're able to take that deep breath in through their nose and they're able to do some, maybe some other things that you're, is there anything else other than the deep breath through their nose that might prohibit them from going straight into oral appliance therapy therapy? So actually that doesn't prohibit them from oral appliance therapy. I started appliance therapy immediately on those patients. It's just that we need in order for it to be truly successful and them to be able to accommodate it at night the whole time. It's that they are also going to that ENT referral to have. So I don't tell okay, them. So maybe what I mean get- by that is, okay, well, you're a candidate. Everyone's a candidate for combination therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might not, you don't have a problem starting oral appliance therapy before that's done. Cause the, the sentiment I got from you is that you don't, you, you, it might be fruitless, not pointless, but it might be fruitless to start oral appliance therapy before the tonsils and anus remove, are, are removed because the, patient will not be able to breathe in, through any hole. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so you don't I understand give what them, you're meaning. You don't want to yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I usually, yeah, I see what you mean by that. The fact is, is I started anyway, cause if they're, if they're not going to do anything, they at least need to be doing or applied therapy. But most of the time, the conversation and the expectations that I have set up at that point is that it's not going to work unless you also get X, Y, or Z fixed. And so when they're accepting oral appliance treatment with me, and they're and they're paying what they have to pay for this treatment. They are going to these referrals and they are getting everybody right. on board. Because I tell them, this is so severe that we really need to throw the kitchen sink. You need myofunctional therapy. You need a phrenectomy. You need an ENT evaluation. I'm going to handle the arch development. So they're looking at it like, okay, I got to get a lot of people to help me with this. So now we're back to the middle, okay? Because I just wanted to clarify that on those yes. extreme cases. But we're back in the middle, and maybe combination therapy, meaning like surgery or oral appliance. I mean, short and oral appliance. Combination therapy would be the best, uh, probably. And so now we have this question mark over it. And so the nice thing is, is if we don't do the surgery now, then based on the article that came out in February, was it February, or January? It was this year, right? It's very recent. Last three very months. Very recent. I mean, February, very, probably. Yeah. Yeah. January, February of 23. Right. Um, and we know that there there's a chance for significant reduction in size of the tonsils and adenoids based on the success, a successful upper expansion therapy. So what we're saying, or at least what I'm hearing you say is do this first and, and then get, you know, if the patient is able to sleep well at night, maybe you still can avoid, maybe you can avoid the, you can, Oh, definitely. Definitely. And so, and that's, what's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now let's, let's find another one. Cause, um, I'm sure anyone listening has more questions because I definitely have a ton of questions, but I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, get back on that dead horse um, of TNA removal. Yes. Yeah. So no, we've talked about that. Um, what are your parents and other patients have got to be coming in? Like, I think the big one we could talk about, or I mean, not talk about would be non-compliance with your, your CPAP right? and your adult oh, patients. With adults. Yeah. Oh, and, definitely. Um, I mean, MADs, um, adult expansion, you know, those kind of things, those are great options for non-compliance, but I wouldn't lump non-compliant non-compliance of a CPAP into ineffective treatment in the way that I think you could say ineffective treatment in TNA surgery. Cause we know the CPAP works hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, There's I no like that. denying I'm that. I'm behind you on that. Um, but 
not being able to wear it because of some of the comorbidities like, you know, abdominal issues. Um, I'm sure there's more, but what are, what are some ineffective treatments or some other ineffective treatments that, um, I don't know. What do you want to go through first? You want to start when you stay in kids or you want to get into adults? Yeah. What's another ineffective treatment? Okay. I'm thinking so, the breathe right nasal strips. Yeah. And I'm going to pick on them, but, but I, everyone knows what that is. Yeah. Um, actually, nasal dilators can help a lot. It, it's in conjunction typically with some other form of uh, how, uh, actual uh, medical care. Okay. But when it comes to the word ineffective, I think that's, we have to tread lightly with that because a CPAP is absolutely effective. Mm-hmm. More so in lab because that's how the studies are done not in its efficacy of real life use. I don't know if you knew this, but a CPAP is only is considered effective if you wear it for four hours a night, 70% of the time. Say that one more time. CPAP is is considered effective, like in the studies, if you wear it four hours a night. Four hours a night. Just four hours a night. It's effective. Four out of the seven days a week. So and one of my friends was telling me the other day, she's on a CPAP and she said, yeah, it gives you a happy face or a mediocre face or a sad face on these newer machines based on the amount of hours. And she said, yeah, I wake up in the middle of the night and if I have to go to the bathroom or something, it's been at least four hours. It gave me a smiley face. And she goes, so if I didn't know that I still needed it, I would take it off and go back to bed. Like it did the treatment it needed to do. Okay. Are you following me? Yeah, totally. Which is crazy because your AHI, your apnea hypopnea index, your 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 apneas are worse towards the end of sleep because that's when you've been in REM and you're paralyzed in REM. So your hypoxia is worse right before you wake up, basically. So when we're saying like what's ineffective, well, it depends on the patient. It depends on what we're talking about because a CPAP is very effective. It's lower efficacy, but it's very efficacious in lab mandibular advancement devices can sometimes have a lower efficacy. I mean, they can have a, yeah, a lower um, effectiveness, but a higher efficacy because in real life scenarios, they're more comfortable to wear. Mm -hmm. And there's just not like, you know, a hundred years of data comparing CPAP to oral appliance therapy. There's a lot now, but when I think about like what's ineffective, I, I immediately jump to these really invasive surgeries that have been done in the last 20, 30 years, like the UPPP, for example, mm. the UPPP is only about, last I read, um, 45% effective. And it is horrifically painful to recover from. I have many, many patients who've had that. What is in it? the beginning, Tell they remove the soft palate almost entirely. And the uvula, which is a little hangy thing. In the beginning, uvula removal was standard in the UPPP surgery. It's not now because you actually need your uvula, they've realized. Salivary gland production, mm-hmm. airway protection, you know, like when you're swallowing and stuff like that. But the patients that have had UPPP, they're not cured from their sleep habit and it's entirely irreversible. There's no putting that back on yeah. once, once they've cut it away. And it's a big muscle and it is so painful. And like they'll take out tonsils and adenoids on adults and that's horrifically painful to recover from. And so to me, that's not an acceptable treatment because all the research and stuff that's been done up to leading to them just taking out the part of the airway that's getting blocked 
has been in ignoring the arches entirely. So that's where I'm just like, okay, we, we think we have this good idea. And then we do these really invasive surgeries that do not cure the problem. Irreversible. Irreversibly. And the biggest complaint I get is choking. Okay. Choking on food or choking on food, water, stuff going out your nose. All, all sorts of, and which I'm sure is discussed in the consent prior, but it's like until you go through it and you realize there's no going back after that's really difficult. Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So what about, um, they're not doing that to kids, are they? I actually have a young patient who has had almost everything that you can think of done to him except expansion and tongue tie revision. Twelve. Yep. Tonsils and out. They also cut some of his soft palate, which I didn't even know they were doing kids that young. And Andy's after all that, he's on CPAP. And now he's in expansion with us, obviously. But Okay. Really so, terribly. Literally, when I look, they hit they cut every they cut anything in there that they can think of except his tongue tie. So this poor 12 year boy who's the most compliant, beautiful little boy. And I'm like, the one thing that really should have been cut with myofunctional therapy and all the proper things wasn't done. God, it's just exhausting. You know, you're just looking at, you're just looking at these kids and you just want to help them. And it's, it's really hard. And I know that's what their intention was. So it's not like me bashing, but I'm just like to get to the point where that was the next thing that was done. It's just really hard. And I think had they noticed his, you know, bilateral class two and large overjet and small jaws, (laughs) maybe they would have referred to that before they did some things that were irreversible. That's, um, I mean, that's why we started this podcast, right? Right, is so that maybe one one person who's a decision maker in a in a medical group or a practitioner or something just changes the way that they think about how they practice, not how they practice. It just, you know, when it comes to that, um, what could what's a better first step, right? Because oh, totally. the the tool oh that gosh. we have in our tool belt in our tool belt might not be the best thing to use right now for that patient. It's what we might be the best at. We might be the best UPPP surgeon on the planet, or we might be the best, uh, you know, fill in the blank. But is that what is best for this patient? And I think that's, this time? I think that's like a million dollar question. I think we can, we can look at that in any, any aspect of medicine. You get a surgeon, they're going to cut, you go to somebody that does this, they're going to want to do that. I mean, it's just naturally like, this is the tool in my kit. And, and that's got to be hard for the public. It's got to be hard for the parent when they're making that decision too. And the only, you know, there's lots of treatments, adult treatments and kid treatments that we could pick apart and scrutinize. Everybody's trying to do their best in the space. But one thing that we haven't talked about that we've alluded to is bicuspid extraction Mm -hmm. and how my expansive techniques differ from what you and I were taught in dental school. What did you learn about by removal in dental school? That just make more, makes more room. Yeah. Makes more space, right? Makes more space. Yeah. And I, what I didn't, what I n- didn't hear in dental school that I heard when I got out, especially as I started getting referrals for bicuspid extraction, um, which if you don't know, they're like these teeth are right, right here. behind your canines. There's, you got two of them. You got your first premolar, your first bicuspid, same thing. And then you got your second, and then you have your first molar, which your first molars will come in when you're about five, six years old. So, um, but those patients coming in were being told by their, you know, by the orthodontist, not all of them, but that these were extra teeth. Okay. That, that, yeah. So you, you were upset about how the soapboxes and how I reached earlier, like we have to, we have to stop doing things wrong. We have to stop doing things wrong. Mm-hmm. And 
I now that I have completed as many cases as I have, I am confidently loudly speaking against removal of perfectly healthy teeth. And, you know, on occasion, we will still get the referral says, please extract the bias. And the girls laugh now when they get one in because they know that I'm just going to go in like ready to educate as best I can. People pay me way too much money to fix that damage. As an adult, I took an oath to do no harm. I will never, ever pull buys unnecessarily for orthodontic treatment. And that is the biggest line in the sand, I think, right now with how airway dentistry differs from traditional orthodontics. And that is when you are not taught, nor do you understand lower jaw expansion, because it was never once talked about when I was in dental school. And I didn't go do an ortho residency, but I have plenty of wonderful dear friends that are orthodontists that do this upper and lower jaw expansion treatment now that have told me it's just not taught. Mm-hmm. So think about it. You're the top of your class. It's hard enough to get into dental school. You got to be super smart anyway there. And then you excel and you're at the top of your class and you apply to an ortho residency and you get in and you should be given everything that there is to do with expansion. Mm-hmm. And it's been cosmetic forever. Rightfully so. We need to have beautiful teeth. I tell patients all the time, your child's going to have perfectly beautiful straight teeth when I'm done. It's not about that. It's about getting the foundation right. And when they come in, I mean, I, I, I have, I have, I have cases of literally beyond severe extreme crowning that we've unraveled by upper and lower jaw expansion, tooth born, tooth born expanders. This comes down to like, when I think about it and, and, you know, slap me across the face if I'm totally butchering this, (laughs) Okay, but, um, when I think about why we're doing, why we're anti bicuspid extraction. Okay. Because I do think that we are that. Because I think that's you know looking at not enough space, and because the cheapest thing in my tool belt, uh, well, if you're patient listening to this, the pla- the clear plastic that goes on top of teeth is way more expensive for that dental office than the metal brackets. Metal brackets have been made for I don't know freaking seventy five years, long time, probably longer, yeah. and and it's cheap. It's dirt cheap. I mean like cents, yeah. pennies, and compared to the plastic stuff, which is thousands. Uh, well, not thousands, but several hundred. Oh um, because it's ortho has been common in the United States for a, a century. And it has not been common in the pl- on the planet for a century. It's definitely becoming more common. And uh, the reason that we believe that bicuspid, orthodon- bicuspid extraction for orthodontics is lazy orthodontics is, <laughs> you said it, not me. It's lazy <laughs> don't, don't come at me with that. Is because that's their hammer. Yeah, that's their common thing. But we're doing this, right. and we because we believe that because of the the Western diet is causing developmental Massive complications. Development of arches, right? Right. We have developmental complications of the jaws, and that leads to a sleep disorder breathing, a, a poor airway. Right. That if we bring the you're born with the genetics that you have. You don't get to change those. Uh, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, you don't get to change those, but that doesn't mean the environment around you doesn't change how those genes express themselves. So your genes tell you what hair color you're going to have. Does that mean that you're always going to have that hair color? Like does it? No, sure. You're environmental. The environment can affect it. If you have malnutrition, you're not going to be as tall as your genes said you could have been when you were born. So your jaws are the same way. Your jaws were meant to be, X size, yes. but because right. of the way that you grew up, whether it started off with, you know, um, 
not breastfeeding or, or whatever, whatever diet you had from birth all the way to where you are now, yeah. that has determined and also has determined how you grew, how yes. yeah. literally growing. Right. So, um, we, what we're, at least what I think we're trying to do here is we're trying to bring the body up to where the genetics want Absolutely. It to be. And we just need to change the narrative that you can't expand the lower jaw. So, mm-hmm. so, so if you think about it, if you don't have that tool in your kit, there's no way to make these kids normal. I, I mean, completely understand if you don't know how to do lower jaw expansion and you have such extreme crowding that the only option is to take teeth out and line them up, which is completely not conducive to adult nasal breathing or retention, because I see and I'm sure you do too, these crazy cases where all four buys were pulled and they're, they're still crowded. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're in their forties now and they're suffering and they don't sleep well and their lateral are displaced and just wasn't done. The foundation wasn't, the muscles in the tongue aren't where they're supposed to be. And so circling back to the extra teeth, that was what a patient was told that they were yeah. extra teeth. And I have zero patients for that now. I think that is the they're that extra is, for that orthodontist, right. not for that patient. It is it is misleading to the patients. I can understand how you could maybe say like wisdom teeth were extra teeth or something. Uh, but but either way, the buys are not that. And we need to stop cutting off our toes because our shoes are too small. And we need to start expanding correctly so that our kids are are healthier and that we stop this epidemic of sleep disorder, breathing and obstructive sleep apnea for generations to come. Awesome. Well, now that we just picked a bunch of fights, let's go ahead and end this episode. Um, get ready for season two guys. We've got a lot coming at we're gonna, you. We're going to start doing some interviews too. I think yeah, we're trying to I get some wait. awesome. I can't wait. We're going to get our ENT in here. We're going to get my functional therapist. We're yeah. going to get, it's going to be fantastic. I don't know. I've got some airway dentists. Yeah. I'm going to interview too in this space. So it's going to be wonderful, but Sweet. stay tuned. Later, guys.